Just to let you know what we're doing today, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and it's the whole chapter. It's a very small chapter. Um, and it, I honestly, if you look at it, it honestly looks like what relevance does this have to us today? Because it's, I mean, Paul's first line in here, now about food sacrificed to idols. I mean, do you know anyone who's sacrificing food to idols? Uh, but there's some principles here, and, and, and they're not stretches. It's not, um, see, the work of a preacher is there's this thing called exegesis, and that is to find out what the text meant to the original readers or hearers of the text. So what is the context these people live in, and why was Paul the apostle addressing that in God's name? And then we're supposed to say, okay, there, that's exegesis, and then hermeneutic, which is a big fancy religious word that means this, what it meant to them, it means to us as well, but our contexts may be different. So we're going we're gonna to try to make that go from the them to us uh, around the principles that Paul speaks of, um, although none of us that I'm aware of know anyone sacrificing animals to idols. So with that said, let me give you a couple of things, a uh, little con contextual stuff, or a couple of reminders, then we'll pray, we'll read the text, and we'll talk through it. Um, one, remember that Paul's goal when reaching out to and, and being corrective and encouraging to the church in Corinth is that overarching look at what's going on in, in Corinth, what Paul is addressing, is this. When the agenda, the attitudes, and the behaviors of the culture look identical or very similar to the agenda, the attitudes, and the behaviors in the church, when they are almost indistinguishable, there is something wrong in the church. Now, we might say there's something wrong in the culture, but we cannot expect people that do not yet, who are not yet, who have not been received as children of God, so people who don't know a God, we can't expect them to behave as if they did because it is the transforming work of, the, of Christ and his redemptive work in our lives and the transformation that comes from the Holy Spirit dwelling within us that, that, that makes us see things differently. So Paul is saying very clearly to the church, you got, you got to look different. And it's not just different to be different. It's because we've been transformed by the renewing of our minds. So that's one. Number two, he uses some words in here that to us sound different than what Paul is intending. So he talks about the weaker and the strong. He's not necessarily here speaking about, and he's not necessarily saying, you know, someone's really strong and someone's really frail. Uh, and, and he uses a word in here, weaker or weak conscience. Now, if we hear about, if, if I were to say to you, and I never would because it's just not true, if I were to say to you that Doug has a weak conscience, you might think he has an underdeveloped sense of morality and frugality. Um, that is not what Paul means. It's, think of it this way, and I, and I don't mean this negative toward anybody, but you've almost all had a friend that was either uh, an alcoholic or a, or, a, or a smoker, and when they quit, everyone's an alcoholic, and anyone that's ever been around tobacco, something's wrong with them. So they, you can get this black and white mentality. You can, you can get to the point where um, because any, if, if, if uh, I have a brother-in-law who's a recovering alcoholic, so if, if, he was, if he was drinking and he stopped, for a while at least, people tend to go, if you, because of the destruction this has done to me, if anyone has any of that, it's wrong and it's sinful. 
So that's what Paul means by a, a weak conscience. It's just one that, that because of some changes in their lives hasn't developed beyond that. And here's why. And this is when we read the text, you'll understand some of this if you have this in mind. The strong or the wealthy and the weak or the poor, the strong or the wealthy could afford meat, whether they were pagan or not. So whether they were going to these, to these uh, other temples, to the goddess Aphrodite or, or, or whatever else, um, they, could, they could go to the marketplace and buy meat. Most meat was available um, in the public marketplace. But the other place you could get it if you couldn't afford it in the public marketplace was in, you, you go to the temple and you watch the sacrifices, you, you, you worship fervently often, you worship some other deity and then there were festivals that don't have religious rites and rituals necessarily, but at the temple. Be kind of like when we do kickoff on the 7th of September. Everyone's invited and we're going to feed them, right? You come here, have food and fun. Those different, the, the, that kind of communal aspect of these different temples, these different gods that were worshipped, they would have these opportunities for people to take some of the food that was burned, some of the food, or the meat that was sacrificed was burned to the deities, and then some of it was left over, and it was for these celebrations. And then some of it was taken to the, to the marketplace for, for, for sale. That's one of the ways they kept their temples going. So all along, the rich or those more affluent could afford the meat in the marketplace. But the poor or the weak of conscience here, that's who Paul's talking about, um, only had meat, and it was always associated with pagan worship and everything that goes with the temple. So when you hear what Paul says and how he says it, please keep those ideas in mind. Let's pray, and then for the next 15, maybe 20 minutes, we'll talk through how this might be applicable to us. Let's pray. Lord, stand in my shoes. Give me your thoughts. Speak with my mouth so that we hear what you want us to hear. We see what you want us to see. We receive what you want us to receive. This is your message for us. Prepare our minds, our hearts to receive it. We pray this in Jesus' name, through the power of your spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen. So Paul starts off, and it's kind of a if-then-but so he kind of tells you what his argument is going to be. He speaks to Christian character, and then he, and then he gets a little bit more clear on it. It says this. Now, about food, sacrifice to idols. We know, and this is where he goes to the people. Remember that, that you've got the, the libertines, the people that think you can do everything, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. And then you have the, 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 the sophists, they're almost Gnostics. Um, and the word for knowledge here is gnosis which is where we get knowledge from, but he's, he's going at them a little bit again, kind of saying, just because you think you've got it all figured out, you don't. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves, but the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. Whenever he says food sacrificed to idols, they only really sacrificed animals. So he's not really talking about plant food here. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed 
There are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things come. Excuse me. He always throws me off there with his tenses. Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Now, just a quick little note. Paul is aware that these idols, these stones, these statues are just stone and wood. But he also knows that there's demonic involvement often with this, with this, this pagan worship. So he is acknowledging that. But the thing that was so in the world, there are many gods, many gods and many lords. He also knows that emperors all around the known world were beginning to demand sacrifice and homage and worship of their own. So they started declaring themselves to be gods. That's that little parenthetical phrase there. But he's saying, but we know one God, and we know that all things came from Christ, and, we, and, and, and uh, through Christ we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, since they, they, they're in this spot of there's, you can't take me back to where I was, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat it and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weaker brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Now, he's not saying that, he's not saying that there's, he doesn't believe in the perseverance of the saints. If you, if you parse this out in Greek, he's saying so that, so that their faith might be in the current and ongoing process of having been, being called into question that leads to destruction. So it might be emboldened to, to eat what has been sacrificed to idols. So this weak brother from whom, for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and, and, wound, uh, and wound their weak conscience, your sin, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if, I eat, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. So there's this battle going on. You've got the, the pagan worship and sacrifice, and really, if you're, if you're worshiping an idol, uh, these, these, uh, this pantheon of gods in Rome, um, you, you don't know it necessarily, but you are, if there's any spirit involved in it, you're worshiping a demon. But then there's these social aspects. Let's say that, well, when I was growing up, East Grand Rapids, um, most everyone I, I grew up around were either Catholic or Jewish. And I went to more bar mitzvahs and bar mitzvahs than I went to birthday parties. So did I sin by going to a religious celebration, a celebration at a temple um, for someone going through the rite of passage, becoming, going from being a girl to a woman or a boy to a man? Paul would argue no. He would say, look, don't, you, don't, you obviously don't go and watch the sacrifice and worship these pagan gods, but if a family member or someone that you know well is having a celebration and there's no religious rite involved and they're eating meat that happened to have been, go ahead. But 
if someone who was so deep into that pagan lifestyle, into that, into that worship of, that, of the demonic, if that person sees you doing that and it makes them think, well, if he can, maybe, or if he does, maybe I should, and it sucks them all the way back into pagan worship, then don't do it. It's just don't do it. But on the other side, the people that Paul calls weak of conscience, they're like, you can't do any of that. If you touch anything, then, I, then, then you're, you're under judgment. So you've got a, a group on this side saying, if you do anything that has anything to do or even slightly resembles anything we used to do, you're sinning. And the other people are going, get over it. It's just meat. Who cares? You're sinning by telling me I'm sinning. Does that sound familiar at all in our world? So I'm going to read you two quotes because they say it better than I can. The first one is, and this is what's going on in the church, and what Paul does by striking this balance. This, the first one is from Craig L. Blomberg. He's a, he's a commentary writer, excellent commentary. This crucial balance between permissiveness and legalism always proves to be far more difficult to maintain than either of the extremes. It requires much less thought and care simply to create blanket prohibition of a certain practice or to tolerate it indiscriminately. Jerome Murphy O'Connor, in, in his book, Freedom or the Ghetto, says this, through fear, the weak, talking about those weak of conscience here, this is the whole weak and strong thing that Paul's talked about before, through fear, the weak would have forced the community into, self into a self-imposed ghetto. Through a destructive use of freedom, the strong would have committed the church to a pattern of behavior indistinguishable from that of its environment. If either group had prevailed, the identity and mission of the church would have been gravely compromised. Paul's response was to focus the vision of the Corinthians on their roots in Christ and on their responsibility to one another and the wider, and, and the wider world. His passionate prudence is a perfect illustration of hey agape oikotomai. Love builds up. See, this whole chapter and the chapters to follow are about, look, you might have everything figured out in your own mind, but if it harms another, it's sin. Even if you think the other and their demands of you are wrong, or even if you think that the other of the demands of you are wrong, it's sin. Why? Because what the world asks what the, their culture, what our culture asks, or what we state. There's nothing wrong with it. I don't see anything wrong with it. Prove me how it's wrong. It's not the, that's not the discussion for a Christian. It's not whether or not it's wrong. The question is, what's the right thing to do? And if you look at the predominant witness of Scripture, especially the New Testament, but it is, it, it is prevalent in the Old as well, that I am to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I think I have knowledge. I really don't think as I should. But in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Oh, I just switched verses. Sorry. <laughs> Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So, math question. In base 10, because every time I do it, some engineer will say, well, what about base 6? In base 10, what it, 2 plus 2 equals 4, right? We all agree that that's truth, and it's kind of 
impossible to argue. How many wrong answers are there? I used to say infinity minus one, but there's no such thing because that's infinity. So there's an infinite number of wrong answers. But what if uh, you have before you uh, this equation, two plus two and an equal sign, and you never answer it? Did you get it wrong? If it's a test, you did, because you didn't answer. But two plus two equals, I'm not going to get it wrong. It's wrong. The answer's four. So for a Christian, what Paul is getting at here, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He tells us here that the ones who love God are known by God. How do we know we love God? The love chapter, love is patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it doesn't keep any record of wrong. You know, you know it. It always trusts, always hopes, always protects. Love never fails. But sometimes, this isn't Paul, sometimes people do. And Paul is speaking to both sides here, those that would enslave us into a ghetto of our own creation, or those who would ask us to look indistinguishable, indistinguishable from the rest of the, of the world, He's saying, guys, love your brother. Love your brother and do not judge. Love your brother and do not judge. He's talking Christian to Christian. So how did, what about today? Well, who grew up CRC? Sabbath rules? Some families, hardcore some not. You know that there's Christian Reform Garage. I'm not mocking. I was Christian Reform Minister of Word for years. But we own a Christian Reform Garage now. Christian Reform Garage is a garage that has hot and cold running water and drains on the floor so you can wash your car on Sunday so that no one else sees. <laughs> Anyone ever remember an aerial, an antenna in the, in the, in, above the garage in the, the attic space? That was so that other people don't know you have a TV. And while we say that's hypocritical, in a way it is, but in a way it's honoring my brother who might think, who might be tempted to, to, to give up his own conviction even though I don't have the same one. These are those morally, are these amoral things. That, you know, there's, there's the black and there's the white. We got that. But what about those things that when Paul says, all things are permissible for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are permissible for me, but I will not be controlled or mastered by anything. What is more important? Watching the NFL on, on Sunday night football. Now, you, there's no aerials anymore. I understand that, or there are, but very few and far between. What is more important? Causing your brother not to stumble or not being a stumbling block to your brother or watching a game. Now, that's an easy question to answer in theory. It's a hard question to answer on Sunday afternoon. There's others. I do not mow my lawn. I have twice since I've lived in this house. I do not mow my lawn on Sundays because there are a few people that would see that as me sinning against God. Now, Sunday's a work day for me. In fact, it's a long one, and I'm exhausted. And sometimes after you get done with a message and you go... No one's ever coming back. Who do I think I am? Speaking on behalf of God. The accuser gets going on me as soon as my third sermon is done. I go home, I take a nap, and it's nice out, and I want to go mow my lawn so that I don't have to worry about it tomorrow. I must consider my brothers and my sisters that live in my area. 
what will it do to them? You ever met a vegan? They're absolutely committed to what they eat. And they want to tell everyone that they're a vegan and why they are. Sometimes it's a moral issue. Sometimes it's a nutritional issue. Sometimes it's a combination of both. If they're coming to my house for dinner, should I have a nice, rare, still bleeding steak? That's what I would like. And I don't, Paul says, or, uh, uh, the Lord says to Peter, kill, eat. I'm not sinning in and of myself if I do that, but if, if they're making that decision for moral reasons, I should eat broccoli and Brussels sprouts with them. Now, those are some obvious examples, but there are many nuanced examples in your own lives. Why would this be in Scripture if God doesn't think it important? We are called to love one another. How will they know we are Christians? By our love. And love always builds up. Love is always concerned with other. If you think through that love chapter, love is patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, it does not light in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Love always trusts, always hopes, always protects, love never fails. I'm not trying to just, you know, but I've said it enough in weddings. How many of those have to do with how we feel? Does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. All the others have to do with how we behave. So if Paul is telling the church in Corinth, after all this stuff and within all this muck, here's what love is. It's patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. Not self-seeking. Not easily angered. Actually, there's one way to translate not easily angered. It's not suspicious. So we, we, we think about that passage, and we'll get to it later, but we'll think about that passage as a wedding thing, and it's not. It's good in a wedding, because if husband and wife don't love, behave lovingly toward one another, then they're going to have a roller coaster of a relationship that might crash. Consideration of other. Read 1 Corinthians all the way through, and you will see time and time and time again what Paul is saying that God is saying. Build the other up. My wife was talking this morning when we were just right before our prayer time of staff, and, and uh, there's a book called the, the Best Yes. Is that what it's called, Lynn? And the question is, so that when you're making a decision on what to do, where to go, who to be with, that kind of thing, in order that I might bless blank. So what's the right thing to do? Instead of, there's nothing wrong with that. What's the right thing to do in this given situation with these particular people? And how might my decisions change my behavior so that, I, so, so that I'm representing Christ even to my brothers and sisters in, the, in Christ? So that I might bless whom? That is how we exercise our freedom in Christ. You are free to do anything that is not sinful, but that may become a stumbling block to someone else, but, and you don't, if you know their background, you know their experiences, you know whether they're going to be offended 
and in some ways justifiably so, by your behaviors because that behavior to them would lead them toward destruction. So doesn't it seem appropriate, kind, loving, to do the, as far as it depends on me, to give grace to another by changing my behavior, or as far as it depends on me to give grace to another by choosing not to judge them even though they're doing something that would be sinful to me. Because we have folks in, 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 in Christendom, in, in the Western Christianity that say, because, because alcohol might lead to alcoholism in your homes, you should be a teetotaler so that your children, even if you could do it responsibly, you don't want them to maybe one day. And then, but if you look at statistics, a lot of the times when people that grow up in, the, in that kind of a household, the kids go, well, if my parents say it's not good, it must be awesome. So they go and they, and they go crazy. But there are whole denominations that, that, they're, that much of their identity is based on what you cannot do. And there are whole denominations based on what you get. You can do anything you want. It seems to me as... Bloom, Blomberg put it here, is the cultural balance between permissiveness and legalism is all, always proves to be more difficult to maintain than either of the extremes. It requires much less thought and care simply to create a blanket prohibition of a certain practice or to tolerate it indiscriminately. If we talk about it in theory and we do the easy thing, we harm others. If we look at it and I, I know this sounds like situational ethics, but if we look at our brother and our sister and go, probably not a ribeye night. Or if you're on the other side of it and you're a vegan and you're going to someone else's house and you know they're not a vegan, maybe not make a big deal about it for the day. There's lots of others, and I know you've already got some in your mind. Ask the Lord so that I may bless in any given circumstance. Paul is saying, just because you know doesn't mean you behave the way you want. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. So the exercise of Christian freedom is to build others up. Let's pray. Lord, <clears throat> I just want to thank you for Paul. He can be brash sometimes. He, can, he, he does not pull punches. But it's clear that he knows you. And it's clear that when he looks at these things, that it's, he, he would lean to one side on this issue. In his personal behavior. But he always leans on the side of the body of Christ. He always leans on the side of loving your brother. He always looks, lives on the side of lifting others up. And he calls the church in Corinth both the strong and the weak, and the church in Zealand to do the same. Lord, thank you for our freedom in Christ, the freedom to choose daily whom we will serve, the, the, the freedom every day to recognize whose we are. And when we recognize that we belong to you, you call us to behave as you would. Pray that you give us the courage and the wisdom to do so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.